Exodus chapter 2. We all love stories. We like to listen to stories. We like to read about stories. We like to watch about stories. They're also called movies. Some of the greatest stories that we see, there's, there's good, there's evil, and there's redemption. At least in our eyes, what seems to be good and what seems to be evil. And I think someone who portrays the difference between good and evil well is Disney movies. Now, I'm not promoting them, all right? This is not an endorsement whatsoever, so don't email me. Don't email me. But this is me trying to relate and to set up the main points of the sermon today. That God uses unfortunate situations to bring about redemption. God uses unfortunate situations to bring about redemption. In Disney movies, especially those that are considered to be the, the classics, there are good characters and there are bad characters. You think about some of the good characters, you think about the Lion King, like Simba, Mufasa, think about some of the princesses like Cinderella, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, Rapunzel, we go on. But we also know some of these villains, the evil in some of these, like wicked stepmothers and uncles, um, an evil fairy. Some of these I had to look up because I didn't know who they were. But the evil, it's oppressive. It's evil. It does not allow flourishing it. Actually, it kills. It beats. It destroys. And I think when we watch these movies or we read these types of books, we want redemption to happen. We want redemption to take place. We want oppression to stop. We want the good to win in the, in the end, and we want the bad to go away and to lose. That's typically, I think, what we desire, right? The only issue is that sometimes in life, what someone sees as good, the other can see as bad. Are you tracking with me here? What someone might see as, as good, another might see as bad. In these stories, we get a perspective of good and evil in the world. What seems good for one is not always good for another. This, this does not always play out like we think it should. And in this story, here in Exodus, there is something terribly happening to God's people. And the people of Egypt are doing it because they thought it was good. They thought it was good. But we read this story, we see this as something really, really bad for the people of God. A terrible thing especially for male babies. The people of God are under slavery. And we would say that this is not good. And hopefully all, everybody in this room would say the killing of babies is bad. Slavery of people, bad. But Pharaoh saw this as good. He was building an empire. And the Israelite people were helping immensely in that building of the empire. The oppression that the Israelite people was aiding the Egyptians. And Pastor Rob last week did a great job setting up what we have today in Exodus 2. Because if we do not see what's happening in Exodus 1, we will have no idea what's happening here in Exodus 2, what's going on. And that's the great thing about the narrative, is that we can kind of see the flow of what's taking place and how the two connect together very easily. That Pharaoh is oppressing, oppressing the Egyptians. But luckily, this is all about the change. Because God knows what is ultimately good. 
And he's about the redemption for his people. He's about the good for the human race. He is perfectly just in everything he does. And if God says it's bad, it's bad. And if God says it's good, it is good. And there is no debate there with that. He has the final say. And he is the righteous judge of all that happens. And one day in the future, he's going to make all the wrongs right and judge everyone accordingly because you cannot and will not hide from God. All will be unseen and all will be uncovered. And he will judge rightly, just as we are going to see later on in this passage. And the theme of walking through Exodus is God's faithful deliverance. God's faithful deliverance. God's faithful deliverance. And we are about to see just the beginning of that here. The rising of redemption. And if you look at the outline that you have in your bulletin, there's three points. I just want to map those out to us and we'll we'll get into the text here. I promise we're getting there. We're getting there. But point number one is Moses rescued. Moses rescued, verses 1 through 10. Point two, Moses retreats verses 11 through 22, and God remembers, verses 23 to 25. As we work through these, I'm going to work section by section. I'm not going to read the whole passage. We'll kind of read that together as we work section by section. That way it kind of flows better together. So right now I'm just going to read verses 1 through 10, and then we will, we will discuss what's happening here. Exodus 2, chapter 1, says, Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman, And the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could not hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe in the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. The woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him back to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is Moses' rescue. So we see the the life of Moses, the, the beginning of Moses. He's born... He's born from a husband and wife of the tribe of Levi. And we don't know this yet in the scripture, but, but, but if you're biblically literate, you know that uh, the tribe of Levi would be the lineage of the priest to come, the Levitical priest. Important for us to know. It's important information here. It has a purpose. And we know from what we talked about last week that Pharaoh did not know Joseph. And this is a, what have you done for me lately lately type relationship between the two. And he is deliberately oppressing the Israelite people and specifically killing boys when they are born. Now, 
now, believe it or not, they don't have the medical, they did not have the medical technology that we have today. Um, and so I'm guessing they didn't have ultrasounds machines. But I'm guessing, maybe I'm wrong with this, but if they did know that these boys were boys before they were birthed, they would have killed them in the womb. That's just a speculation. But either way, it's evil. Killing children in the room, evil. Killing babies that have just been born, evil. It's evil, not because we here in the room agree that it is evil, but it is evil because God says it's evil. God says it's evil. We saw this last week, but it sets up what we see and is about to happen here in chapter 2. Moses is born, and this little boy is well. His mother looks upon him, and she says that he is fine. He is healthy. And this works well with what chapter 1 had to say. So that the, the Hebrew people that were born, they were strong, and they were plentiful. God was blessing. God was working. And he had blessed Moses. It's similar to what God did and what he said when he created everything. He said it was good in everything that he created. And Moses' mother says the same thing. This boy is fine. This boy is well. So because of that, she hides him for three months. She hides him for three months. As many parents in the room know, as a child gets older, they get a little louder. It makes it a little more difficult to hide a child. And so by faith, what does she do? She puts him in the Nile River, as they were told to do. But it's very interesting what she does. She puts him in a basket, and she's using pitch to seal the basket. Now, the significance here is that the Hebrew word for basket is also the same word for the ark that Noah had built. That word there is tebah. The Hebrew people would see this word, and they would recognize it, and see that both sealed their boats with pitch so that water could not get in. And God sovereignly allows Moses to float down the river without being eaten by crocodiles or anything else in that river, or tipping over or flooding. And it floats to, to, to Pharaoh's daughter, who for some reason is bathing that time in the Nile. Maybe this was strategic on their part. I don't know. And even if she did see him, she didn't have to take him. She could have just let him pass by. We see God's hand in this. And just as Noah is saved by floating in water, and God makes a covenant with him, he's doing the same with Moses. Moses is delivered from a watery death. And Pharaoh's daughter, she gets the basket. She opens it up. She sees it. She sees the child crying. And what does she do? She has compassion for him. She has compassion for him. You see how her compassion is different from her father's. He wants to kill the babies, but she has compassion. She wants to save the baby. So she gets Moses. It's Moses' sister, tells her to take her back to her mother, nurse the boy until he grew older. And it is amazing to see what the Lord is doing here. He's using evil for good. He's using evil for good. And it's so close to where the evil is coming from. The daughter of the Pharaoh. This brings the life of Moses close to the evil that is happening. And really, we see this without, throughout Scripture in different parts. You know, you think of Joseph himself put in an evil situation. God uses that. Think of Daniel. 
Ben been preaching through Daniel. He was in a very evil situation, but God uses that. Think about Esther. Put in a very evil situation, but God uses that. God puts people in situations where they are close to the evil that's taking place, and he allows them to prevail for his glory. We see that here. And Moses himself is very close to the situation, which brings us to the retreat. So look at here, verse, verse 11 through 22. It says, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? And he answered, Who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh had heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and they drew water and filled the troughs to, to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. And when they came home to their father, Raoul, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, And where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. And he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. We see Moses is rescued. Now Moses retreats, and he grows up quickly. Grows up so quickly. We go from birth to him being a man, just like that. Sometimes it maybe feels like it happens that way. But many would say that he is 40 years old. Acts chapter 7, verse 23 confirms that. And really, if you look at the life of Moses, it's broken up into periods of 40s. So 40 years in Egypt, 40 years in Midian, and then 40 years leading the people in the wilderness. And in a commentary I was working in, working through, Tony Maria points this out, and I found this very interesting. He said, notice the time that passes between verses 10 and 11. Moses grew up. A number of similarities exist between Moses and the great Savior, Jesus. He said, let me point out a few. He said, like Moses, Jesus was born to be a Savior and was rescued from an evil ruler at birth. Like Moses, he sojourned in Egypt says, out of Egypt I called my son, Matthew 2, 15. Like Moses, silent years occurred before his public ministry. Like Moses and the Israelites who wandered for 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus spent 40, year, or 40 days in the wilderness. And Jesus went to a high mountain and gave the wall, his sermon on the mount, much like Moses did on Sinai. Now, Jesus is much greater than Moses. We know that from Hebrews. We're going to get to that here in a little bit. But we know this because Jesus was without sin. It's fascinating, though, to see the similarities between Christ and Moses. 
But Moses goes out. He sees the burdens of his people. And he sees them with, not just sees them, he sees them with great emotion. He's moved. He's disturbed by what's happening. He's disturbed so much that he kills an Egyptian man who is beating a Hebrew. And he hides him in the sand. He's seen. He's caught. Pharaoh eventually finds out about this, and Moses leaves Egypt because Pharaoh is going to kill him for what Moses has done. Those are the cliff notes. But let's focus on some things here in this section. Moses kills a man. Why does he do that? Why does he do it? Well, it seems like he very much identifies himself as a Hebrew. Verse 11 says that he goes out to his people. He calls them his people. This Egyptian was beating a Hebrew, one of Moses' people. See it again. So Moses kills him. Now, we do not know how much he did identify with, with the Hebrew people because we see also later in this passage as he goes to Midian, what do the seven daughters say? They said, he's a man from Egypt. So it might have to deal with the way that he was dressed or his clothing or the way that, that he had looked, but obviously there was, there was a connection here with Moses and the Hebrew people, people. Because later on, he tries to help two Hebrew people arguing with each other. He's telling them, guys, we're on the same team here. Why are we fighting? Let's work together. But Pharaoh finds out that Moses has killed one of his people. And it is, and it, and it is on. It is on. The only thing that Moses knows what to do is to retreat or run away. He is scared. I mean, the, the text says he, is, he, he was afraid. The end of verse 14, he was afraid. So what does this action of Moses mean? Was he wrong in for killing the man? You ever thought about that? Was Moses wrong in killing the Egyptian? I read that Augustine said that Moses had no legal authority to do what he did against the man. And it cost him 40 years in Midian before God was ready to use him. This was not justice he was enforcing. Otherwise, why would he go hide the body? Why would he do that? He knew what he did was wrong. He looked and saw, was anybody watching me before he committed the crime? He thought he was helping deliver his people in his timing. This was not God's timing. And soon after this, he goes to his own people who are fighting, and they reject him. Isn't that amazing? They reject it. Maybe it's a precursor for what we're going to see throughout Exodus. Moses' people rejecting him. And then maybe they turned him in. How did Pharaoh find out? They knew. But they rejected what he did instead of going along with it and thanking him, his own people. But I also want us to see the good, the encouraging parts in this section of Exodus 2 and Moses' life as he retreats. Moses clearly identifies with his people. And he rejected the easier lifestyle of potential luxury, being a son of Pharaoh's daughter. He identifies with his people and he wants justice. But he has to wait for the hand of God to work. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to look at four verses there. This, this really provides some really helpful commentary, I think on this passage. We're going to look at verse 23 through 26. And this does kind of help us understand what is, what is going on here. 
Remember, the best, com- the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. And so Hebrews 11.23 says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to call the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Be called the, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater than the wealth of the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the eternal reward. Moses rejects the rewards of Egypt by faith and chose the harder path. He could have stayed in in, in comfort and luxury with an easy life, but he decided not. He identified with his people. He identified with them. And I thought about this. I felt some conviction, I think even in my own life, You've heard me preach before. I try to be open and honest and show, my, show you my flaws, my failures, my struggles. I'd ask the question, would I be willing to do the same when I'm up against something that I do not agree with because I have biblical convictions knowing that it may cost me a relationship, a job, and security? Ask yourself that question. I think Moses is a great example of that. But Moses was also not stupid. He did not do what he did and then stayed for allow Pharaoh to kill him. He left, he fled, he retreated to Midian. And I think it shows us that we have to be wise, that we do not allow suffering just to suffer for suffering's sake, but to be wise, to be led by the Spirit. I think this is where Moses, once again, fails and he's trying to do things on his own. But we know that God works in failures. He's no, he knows what's going to happen. Moses leaves. He heads to Midian. He's at this well. He's helping this, this group of seven daughters. They're drawing water for his father's flock. This group of shepherds come in to try to drive these women out. But Moses somehow stands up against them. One man drives off this group of shepherds. He must have thought, I've caused enough havoc in the past. What's one more thing? And the shepherds, they go away. The daughters go back to their father rule. They tell him everything. And he's like, ladies, what are you doing? Bring this man and let him eat with us. He's done a good thing. So good that rule Moses's, uh, or gives Moses a, a wife You must really like this Moses guy. And the Lord blesses them with a child. Moses is about to spend another 40 years. You could call it an extended retreat. Like a 40-year retreat. And Midian, he's a shepherd caring for his father-in-law's flock. We see in verse 1 of chapter 3, it tells us that he spends 40 years learning to be a nobody. He learns 40 years being a humble Shepherd nobody so that the Lord so that the Lord could be a somebody. That's what's taking place here. Moses gets out of the way for the Lord to use him the way he intends. 
And this brings us to our last point. God remembers. God remembers. Verse 23 to 25, it says, During many days the king of Egypt died. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery, it came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. And God knew. These first two chapters are difficult. There's, there's some hard things. We come to the end of chapter 2 here, and there are some beautiful, beautiful, reassuring, hope-filled words. So much that we can learn about the Lord in times of anguish, groaning, crying out to God. We see that the king has died. The author makes that clear. The Pharaoh is no more. But that does not change the status of the Israelites. It does not change their status. It does not change the, the things that they're dealing with. They groaned because of their slavery and their cries went up to the Lord. The cries went up to the Lord. The dying of the king may show us that Moses was now maybe safe to return to Egypt. His warrant was not out anymore. He'd been forgotten. But Moses' people are still hurting greatly. Their cries have gone up to the Lord. And watch, what's, watch, watch and see what happens here in verses 20, 24 and 25. Track the verbs here. Because I think these are really important. Look at, starting in verse 24, we see this. We see that, that God heard. He heard. God remembered. God saw. And God knew. God heard their groans. They're crying for their oppression to end. For slavery to be no more. And it made me wonder if they knew, if they knew that God was hearing their cries for help, or if they were just complaining for someone to do something, whatever it was, they needed help. They needed help. The text does not necessarily show us that they were crying out to the Lord and, that they, and who they were asking for help for, or from who, but maybe they thought this was their last resort. Somebody help us. I think the interesting thing for Christians in the room is this. But unlike the Hebrew people, we know who we pray to. We know who we pray to, who we cry out to, who we groan to, and who listens to those prayers. This right here shows us the importance to go to the Lord because we know who we pray to. He's the God of heaven. He's the creator. He is the sustainer. He is holy. And he listens to us. Be encouraged by that Christian in the room. But God hears their cries and he remembers. God remembers. And I think this is the key of what's happening in this, this small little paragraph here that God heard and he remembers. And it does not stop with just hearing but remembering. But God remembering is not that God had forgotten. God had not forgotten his people. He had not forgotten. He is showing us that he always knew. He always knew about his people. But God remembering is showing us that he is about to act. He's about to do something. We're going to see this next week. But he is about to act. He's about to act because he's made a covenant. A covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. 
This is the rising of redemption that's about to take place for the people of Israel. We are seeing the, be- the very beginning of what God is about to do for his people because he has promised that he would bless them, he would bring his people to salvation, and he's doing that. And God saw what his people were going through, and everything is setting up exactly like he had planned, and now he is about to act. What we see here is it's just the beginning. See, the person of Moses, his first 40 years of life, his rescue as a young baby, his retreat as a man, and the Lord is about to do something through this man. We're going to see his ups and his downs, his victories and his defeats. We see the next two chapters, he feels very unqualified. He wants to give this away. He doesn't want to do this. The Lord is about to work through him to relieve his people from oppression. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? We come to these really hard first chapters, the people of Israel being oppressed, and this story of a man named Moses. God himself shows us so much about himself. He shows us that he uses unfortunate situations to bring about his redemption. He uses unfortunate situations to bring about his redemption. I think this is the main idea of what the chapter means. Fortunate. God is about to use Moses, take the people out of Egypt, and two things he's going to do. Two things he's going to do. He's going to relieve them from the physical pain that they are in, from their slavery. He's going to meet their needs. He's going to bring them out of slavery. But he's also going to establish his law with them so that they know that he is God and that he is going to bring them out of spiritual slavery. Because that's their greatest need. God is going to let them know when you were crying for help, guess who heard you? When you were crying for help, guess who heard you? It was me. Not only, I, not only am I going to take you out of this physical slavery, but I am going to covenant with you. You are my people, and I am your God, and I alone am worthy to be worshipped and to bring you out of spiritual slavery. You have a true God to worship now. Not those, not those fake gods of Egypt. And even in our own lives, we want to care for, for those who are difficult situations. We want to help in ways to help people that need relief in, in some way. But if it's not connected to the gospel, we have to ask, what good are those things in the scope of the kingdom of God? And we fight for the unborn because there are gospel and implications in how people view those who are made in the image of God. But if their heart is not changed towards the gospel and towards repentance, towards Christ, then really we've only gone halfway. It's good to see someone's heart change towards killing a child in the womb. But if it's not repentance ultimately back to Jesus, then there are bigger issues than killing babies. You are smart people. I know most of you. You are smart people. We have a my, in my opinion, we have, we have a very biblically literate group that come here on Sundays. Many of you, I think, are much smarter, smarter than me and do a much better job than what I can. But this is not something new to you. 
But we cannot be reminded enough of the gospel and how it plays out in our lives, how it moves us to action to pray for the lost, engage the city, the gospel for Christ. For it is the world's greatest need. The only thing that's going to push back evil in our world is the gospel. And it's shown over and over again throughout history. Not only is it biblical, but it's played out through history. Currently, do you know where many believe to be the fastest growing church in the world right now? The fastest growing church in the world. I learned this in a conference a few years ago. They asked the question, I thought, I thought it was China. China seems like the fastest growing church in the world. The fastest growing church in the world right now, it's in the Middle East. Iran. It is Iran, not Iran. Sorry, Alan Jackson. That might have went over your head, but that's okay. A country that is 98% Muslim. The eighth most persecuted country in the world, according to Open Doors. In 1979, there were believed to be about 500 Christians in the country. Today, there's estimated over a million Christians in Iran. And here's the deal. I get a little weary when people start, start talking about fast-growing church movements and this, that, and the other. Like, it, I, you know, I, hair on the back of my neck kind of stands up. I ask the question, are they, are, they growing, are they growing too fast? Are these pastors, are these leaders, are they, are they actually even being trained? But here's something also I know. I think we see this in, in, in Exodus. Here's something also I know. That God is going to do whatever he wants to do. And man cannot stop it, should not stop it, and should not try to stop him. If God wants to bring revival, then let him do it and trust the results up to him. But there's been revival taking place in Iran over 40 years, and it does not seem to be slowing down at all. Darkness is being pushed back because of the gospel. Things are still really hard there, but darkness is being pushed back, and the church is growing, and we praise God for this. And we pray for more of that type of movement throughout the world. And that's just one current example. There's been many examples throughout church history. We could point to a lot of different things where the gospels put back, push back darkness. The point being, God will redeem his people and nothing will stand against it. And I close with these words, the end of Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 31. Paul, at the end of this magnificent chapter, this is what he said. This is what he says. He says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of the Father, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, that is so encouraging. Be encouraged by that Christian. Who can separate us from the love of God? God's going to do whatever he wants to do. Nothing's going to stop him. He is sovereign and he is redeeming his people back to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and the hope that it provides us even in times of difficulties. There are some in this room that are going through difficulties. God, give them hope. Give us hope that you are good. You are working things for your good and for your glory. Help us to trust in that. Help us to believe in that and help us to to live our lives faithfully. That we pray for revival. We pray you would continue to see and to orchestrate revival in places like Iran, difficult areas. We pray for revival here in this city, in this state, in this country. God, shower down your grace upon the lost and dying world. We need you. We need you to move, and we're asking that you help us to remain faithful. We love you, Lord, and we praise in Christ's name. Amen.